in His book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion in order to survive. Her only hope was to receive a blood donation from her brother. Not only because the siblings had the same rare blood type, but also because the boy had survived the same condition that his sister now suffered from. His blood, therefore, contained the antibodies that could save his sister's life. The doctor carefully explained all this to the little boy, pointing out that without his blood, his sister would likely die. Then the doctor asked, Would you be brave and give your blood to your sister? The boy hesitated at first. Then he smiled and said, Sure, for my sister. The blood transfusion proceeded. The two were laid next to each other in the hospital room and the boy smiled as he watched his blood travel out of his body down the clear plastic tube toward his sister. During the blood transfusion, the doctor was relieved as he saw color return to the little girl's face. He knew it was going to be a success. But when the procedure was finished, the weakened little boy looked up at the doctor and asked, How soon before I die? The boy thought that giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. Yet because of his love for her, the boy was prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice. We are continuing to look at the last week of Christ from the Gospel of Matthew. We began with the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we call Palm Sunday. We then focused on the Lord's cleansing of the temple, where He did some remodeling in the court of the Gentiles. And we followed that with some of His teaching. Specifically, teaching about the end times. Last week, we looked at the Passover meal, where at the end, with bread and wine, Jesus transformed it 
into the Lord's Supper to symbolize His ultimate sacrifice. So picking up where we left off, Jesus and His disciples finished the meal. And together with the exception of Judas, who has left to do his dirty work, they leave the upper room and make their way to the nearby Garden of Gethsemane, a place where Jesus often went with his disciples to be alone. Jesus knew his time was very short. And so he took his closest companions, Peter, James, and John, deeper into the garden to be with him during this difficult time. He asked that they remain alert while he went a little further by himself to pray. We're told that Jesus was in extreme anguish and overwhelmed with deep sorrow. The gravity of the situation drove Jesus to the ground. And in prayer, He said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, big word, yet, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus sought help and comfort from His Father. Jesus knew His Father intimately from eternity past. They had never been apart. And Jesus knew His Father could do anything. And He asked that He Remove this cup. And just so you know, in this context, the cup is a symbol of God's undiluted wrath and judgment. As you can imagine, there are all kinds of views about this prayer by Jesus. And some have suggested this prayer was a sign of weakness and fear he had as a man. But I think it is a sign of his holiness. Reacting to the thought of becoming the bearer of sin for all mankind. 
Jesus is facing something completely foreign to him. Yes, Jesus was tempted to sin just like us, but he never gave into it. He never sinned. And shortly, shortly, the sins of the world, all of them, will be placed on him. Jesus asked to avoid the cup. Father, if there is any other possible way to save humanity other than what awaits me at the cross, let it be. But there was no other way to save a lost and dying world. His death was necessary, and this prayer, this prayer by Jesus eliminated any other way of salvation. There was no other way. The Father loved His Son. The Father loved His Son, and yet He did not take the cup from Him. This prayer did not change the outcome for Jesus. This prayer did not change the outcome for Jesus, but His love for His Father and His Father's love for Him moved Jesus from a moment of intense stress to strength. While Jesus was praying and His disciples were sleeping, a small army of soldiers came and arrested Jesus. Jesus is taken first to Annas. He's the ex-high priest. And then to his son-in-law, the current high priest, Caiaphas where the other Jewish religious leaders had assembled for an illegal illegal trial. The witness testimony presented against Jesus was completely twisted and false, and still the case against him was falling apart. And then the high priest put Jesus under oath by saying to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us. 
This was a clear-cut question, and Jesus gives them a clear-cut answer in return. You have said it yourself. You've got it right. You said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ, their long-awaited Messiah, and those were the words the religious leaders were waiting for. As far as they were concerned, this was blasphemy against God. And Jesus was found deserving of death. They spit on Jesus. They blindfolded Him so He could not anticipate their punches. And they beat Him with their fists. It's early Friday morning. Early Friday morning, probably before sunrise. It's early. And the religious leaders huddled up to develop a strategy on how to have Jesus put to death without creating any backlash from the common people. It was decided to let the Romans do the job. And so they bound Jesus and delivered Him to Pontius Pilate the Roman governor of Judea, who just so happens to have a nasty reputation for being cruel and ruthless. Pilate has no love for the Jews whatsoever. So this execution of Jesus should be a slam dunk. Piece of cake. Jesus is brought to the gate before Pilate. And Pilate asks a few routine questions like, what is the charge against this man? That's a good question. What is the charge against this man? Well, the religious leaders couldn't answer that question directly because there was no Roman law against blasphemy. They couldn't say, this man claims to be the Son of God. Because Pilate would have said, so what? We have many gods. One more is going to make no big deal. So instead, the religious leaders brought three false charges against Jesus. They said Jesus perverts the nation. He opposes paying taxes to Caesar. And he claims to be the king. Now that third charge got Pilate's attention. Since this suggests 
that Jesus might be a rival of Caesar. And he agrees to examine Jesus further. At this point, John tells us that Pilate goes back into his residence and summons Jesus to come inside to speak with him. Pilate questioned Jesus about his kingship. Are you the king of the Jews? And in so many words, Jesus made it clear he was, in fact, a king. A king of another world. And he was not a threat to Rome. After his questioning, Pilate comes back out with Jesus to the gate and tells the religious leaders he found no guilt of a crime. But learning that Jesus is a Galilean, Pilate passed the buck, so to speak, and sent Jesus to King Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Well, Herod, the same Herod who executed John the Baptist, gets absolutely nowhere with Jesus. And consequently, Herod sends Jesus right back to Pilate for round two. Are you following me? Okay. So once again, at the gate, Pilate explains that neither he nor Herod have found Jesus guilty of anything. And those words did not sit well with the religious leaders. They became angry. They brought all kinds of wild charges against Jesus, and yet Jesus did not defend himself. Which amazed Pilate even more, because most people would do or say anything to escape punishment. Pilate saw the writing on the wall. He wants no part of this at all. But he has to come up with something. There was a custom in that day for the governor to release one prisoner at Passover each year. It was a great PR stunt for the Romans. And Pilate thought that maybe he could declare Jesus guilty just for the record and then let him go. And problem solved. So Pilate asked the crowd who was gathered, who they wanted released. Jesus or the worst guy in the prison, the notorious and violent Barabbas. Pilate expected the obvious choice 
would be Jesus. But he was wrong. Worked into a frenzy by the religious leaders, the crowd surprisingly asked for the release of Barabbas. On that morning, Jesus, who was innocent of any wrongdoing, would be punished. And Barabbas, who was guilty of just about everything, would be pardoned. Pilate knew Jesus was not guilty. But in hopes of satisfying the anger and hatred of the religious leaders and their followers, Pilate decided to have Jesus scourged. Which is another way of saying severely flogged with leather whips embedded with pieces of metal and bone. Jesus would have been stripped of his clothing, tied to a post, and beaten from top to bottom until his body was literally torn to shreds. Pilate had hoped to create some sympathy from the crowd if they saw the tortured body of Jesus. So after the scourging, Pilate led Jesus back out before the crowd, hoping the punishment would be enough for them. But again, Pilate was wrong. Pilate asked the crowd, What shall I do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus? In truth, a question that has to be asked and answered by each of us. What shall I do with Jesus? And here the crowd shouted, Crucify Him! Pilate responds, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Crucify him! When Pilate saw that his attempts to reason with the crowd were futile, he washed his hands and declared, I am innocent of this man's blood. Jesus was taken into the courtyard, and there the soldiers mocked him for claiming to be a king. They pressed a crown of thorns upon his head, dressed him in a faded purple military cloak, and they beat Jesus with a staff, causing even more physical trauma. Then the soldiers removed the mock royal attire and dressed Jesus in his own clothes. And an execution squad 
under the command of a centurion, led Jesus outside the city to crucify him. According to the law, according to the law, the guilty person had to carry his own cross. Or at least the crossbeam, the horizontal crossbeam to the place of the execution. And Jesus was no exception. Jesus started to carry the cross, but in his weakened state from the torture he had already endured, Jesus apparently wasn't moving fast enough for the soldiers. And so a man from Cyrene named Simon was pulled from the crowd by the soldiers and forced to assist Jesus. Simon was simply passing by. He was likely visiting Jerusalem to worship for the Passover celebration, maybe hoping to experience something significant in his life. And he winds up with a wooden cross on his back. I seriously doubt Simon had any idea of what was going on that morning in Jerusalem. But unknown to Simon, he was aiding the Son of God in saving a lost and dying world. You know, we have no idea of what hangs in the balance when God changes our plans like He did to Simon. I guarantee you, carrying a heavy cross in a parade to a crucifixion was not part of Simon's plan for that day. But without a fight, Simon surrendered. What God asks you and me may seem completely unreasonable and inconvenient and very unfair and maybe even painful. But we have no idea what's at stake when we trust and obey. In Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 33, we are told, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. 
And when they had crucified Him, they divided up His garments amongst themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over Him there. And above His head, they put up the charge against Him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's around 9 a.m. on Friday morning. 9 a.m. And Jesus finally arrives to Golgotha, Calvary. Along with two robbers who were also condemned to die. Jesus is offered wine mixed with gall, also known as myrrh. But when he realizes what it is, he refuses to drink it. More than likely, this was a drink provided for the condemned as a kind of painkiller. But Jesus refused anything that would dull his senses or diminish his suffering. For he must drink the cup of God's undiluted wrath and judgment for sin. Now if you notice, Matthew avoids the gory details of the crucifixion. As if the Father says, I don't want to talk about it. Matthew avoids telling us about the spikes being driven through the base of the palms and through the feet of Jesus. The dislocation of His shoulders and elbows. The prolonged suffocation and the unthinkable pain. A pain so far beyond description that a new word was invented to describe it. Excruciating. Excruciating. Which literally means out of the cross. Excruciating. Matthew does not tell us these things. Instead, he focuses on the activities of the soldiers below who do not know they are fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. We're told the soldiers keep watch to prevent anyone from rescuing Jesus. Callously passing the time away by rolling the dice to see who would get his clothing. A sign is placed over the head of Jesus 
written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, that say Jesus is the King of the Jews. This was Pilate's way of sticking it to the Jewish religious leaders who had forced his hand against Jesus. Then beginning with verse 38, Matthew tells us, At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Right. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. There are two robbers, one on each side of Jesus. Equal distance from him. Neither one better than the other. But as we know, one will eventually, eventually believe. And the other will not. One will be in heaven, the other in Hades. Jesus is taunted and mocked by the religious leaders. And I will be honest with you, there is a part of me that would have liked, actually loved, to have seen Jesus come off that cross and put these self-righteous religious men in their place. But if Jesus had come down from the cross to save himself, nobody else could have been saved. Jesus did not come to save his life, but rather to give it as a ransom for sinners. Matthew continues, beginning with verse 45, and says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. 
That is, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? From noon to about 3, 3 p.m., from noon to 3, normally the brightest and the hottest time of the day, there is a supernatural darkness that covers the earth. Likely three hours of awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping silence. And then in the darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These words, hopefully you recognize them, these words are a direct quote from the first line of Psalm 22. A psalm about Jesus, which in many respects reads like a script of his final hours. Jesus is asking a question, but he's not seeking an answer because he already knows the answer. Jesus knew exactly why he came, what was expected, and what would happen to him. So this question is not a question seeking an answer. Instead, it's an expression of unimaginable suffering and agony. But not only that. For the very first time in all of eternity, in the darkness, Jesus is experiencing the horror of being separated from the Father. Because Jesus was made to be sin on our behalf, bearing our guilt and shame, taking God's wrath and judgment upon Himself for a while. Jesus ceases to know the intimacy of fellowship with His Father. And in that moment, Jesus genuinely felt forsaken and abandoned. The onlookers heard these words from Jesus, but they did not understand exactly what was said. Beginning with verse 47, we are told, And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, 
Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Here's the picture. Jesus is thirsty. And someone goes to get him a drink. Then John tells us, John, that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. It is finished. That phrase comes from one Greek word. Just one. Tetelestai. A common word used in those days, but a word unfamiliar to us. From a Jewish perspective, that word tetelestai brings up the thought of making restitution. To make peace. To make whole. In the secular world, in those days, it was a word signifying a debt was paid in full. Or an assigned work was completed. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. In victory, he was saying everything was done. Nothing was left to do. His work was completed. Restitution was made. The wages of sin were paid off in full. And God's divine wrath and justice were satisfied. And how do we know this? How do we know that the penalty of sin was paid in full by Jesus and that the Father was completely satisfied. Well, look at verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. About 300 yards from Golgotha stood the Jewish temple. Inside the temple were two rooms. The first room, the most holy place, 
was where a few priests performed their daily sacrifices. But the inner room, the inner room was the holy of holies, where God's glory dwelt. Only the high priest was allowed to enter this inner room once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. Separating these two rooms and symbolically separating God's presence from the rest of the world was a thick woven curtain that was about 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. At the moment Jesus died, that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. Two groups of strong men pulling from the bottom corners might, just might, tear that curtain from bottom to top. But the fact that it was torn from top to bottom means that only a hand from above could rip it. That torn curtain tells us the Father was completely satisfied with the payment for sin made by His Son, and therefore, the barrier to God, the symbolic barrier that separated people from Him, was torn once and for all, so that all may approach God freely through the finished work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> there is a song that I have heard on occasion. I love this song. Entitled, How Deep the Father's love for us. I want to read it to you. <clears throat> How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory. Behold, 
the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Father, I don't even know where to begin. I'm at a loss for words. For part of me, there is shame that it took a cross and your son to die on it. But then part of me is gratitude that you died for me. Father, I pray we would never forget the sacrifice of your Son. He absolutely could have come off that cross He could have called 72,000 angels to deliver him. But he remained there for us. Thank you. I thank you that it is finished. I thank you that you love us. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. That was tough. An evangelist was asked by a young man, What must I do to be saved? 
And the evangelist replied, you're too late. The young man freaked out. What, what do you mean? What do I have to do? And Evangelist replied, too late. It's already been done. It's already been done. You just have to believe. Christ died for you. Let that sink in. Christ died for you. Personally. Oftentimes we, we kind of take this universal approach. Well, yeah, yeah, he died for the whole world. Right? I'm part of, I'm part of that. And I understand that. And that's true. But there's a very real sense that he died personally with you in mind. He thought about you. Just <laughs> he asked you to place your faith in him. How could we not? In spite of what he has done for us, how could we not? He died for us and he asked that we live for him. That's a pretty good trade-off. He died for you. He asked you to live for him. That's the call this morning. And I'm not sure what that looks like for you. Probably involves some changes. I know it does me. Christ died for you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? I say that because what we believe determines our behavior. Am I right? What we believe determines our behavior. Do you believe it? Does it show? Maybe you were here this morning. This was the first time you've heard the story of the cross. He was thinking of you. Maybe you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. He knows you, but He wants you to know Him. I would love to introduce you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. The place to call your own. A place to commit to. We'd love to have you. Or maybe there's something else. You just want some prayer. 
I'd love to pray with you as well. However the Lord leads you, just be obedient, trust Him, and obey Him, and respond. Larry? Yeah,